Romans chapter number six. Okay, I'd like you to finish this uh, expression. It's a familiar one, so you just put in the last word. You only have to answer one word, and so it's a pretty easy uh, Sunday morning quiz. Ignorance is bliss. Okay, now, I did a little bit of research on this because I wanted to know, do people really believe that ignorance is bliss? And I found an article that was presenting really, truly. Now, they went on to say, now, there are some times when it's not, but, but they said it may be bliss, and here's some examples that they mentioned. Ignorance may be bliss when it comes to knowing how many calories are really in a decadent dessert. They said it's much easier to enjoy a piece of cake if you don't realize the chunk you're about to bite into has 450 calories or more. Um, He says here, a lack of knowledge can make for a guilt-free delight. Well, I suppose it might be okay not knowing, but not necessarily if you are on some kind of a diet. They said ignorance is certainly bliss. Now think through this. They're not being silly about it. They said ignorance is certainly bliss for a parent who thinks their child follows all the rules when in reality they are out misbehaving with friends. Now, I think what they're saying is, you know, we just feel better because we don't know. But, but is that really equivalent to ignorance is bliss. Ignorance may be bliss for people who refuse to turn on the news. They might not know that a robbery took place in their neighborhood last night and therefore they're a little bit more carefree and a little more susceptible to robbery, okay? And the last one they mentioned, ignorance may be blissful for a person who believes that their entire family loves their cooking. It may be bliss for them, but the rest of the family is enduring great tribulation. Is ignorance always bliss? Now, I, find out, I found out where the, the phrase came from. It came from an 18th century English poet named Thomas Gray. He wrote a poem in 1742, and in it, this line says, Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. I suppose that scripture would refute the statement, generally speaking, that ignorance is bliss. The Apostle Paul is going to help us today to understand that there are some things that you not only should know, but you are responsible to know them. Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 6. Look with me, Will, if you will, down at verse number 3. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 3. Here he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. There are many things that when we know we should act upon. Now, knowing doesn't demand that we act, but it certainly changes my perspective and even my possibilities. To know something 
It means that we take advantage. Now, again, we don't have to take advantage of it, but, but there is something about knowing that, oh, I didn't know that was an option. Have you ever been presented with something before and someone says, hey, why haven't you? And you said, I, I just didn't know that was an option. Years ago, when, when I took my first senior pastorate, there were certain things that, that I suppose I knew, but I was a little hesitant to actually take advantage of. I, I felt a little funny. And one of those things may seem silly, but, but it was a bigger deal to me. They had a parking place that was mine. It was my parking spot. And you know, for the first several days when, when I would go then to the office at the church, I would pull up and I would park somewhere other than the parking spot that was reserved for me. Essentially, I'm not doing anyone else a favor because I'm taking their parking spot. So I'm, I'm parking there because I felt a little, I don't know, I felt a little presumptuous. And finally, someone said to me, they said, hey, pastor, do you know that spot's for you? And I said, um, oh, uh, yes. And they said, you know, it's for you. You really should park there. And I began, I honestly, I still remember the first time I pulled the car up to that parking spot and I pulled in a spot. Now, it was much more convenient, to be quite honest with you. The access to my office was right there. If I had to go out and visit someone, go to the hospital, make some kind of call, it was wonderfully convenient. But I wasn't taking advantage of something that I knew actually was mine. Knowledge doesn't demand something, but it certainly does open the possibilities. And how presumptuous it would be for me to park in a spot that says reserved, but it's not actually reserved for me. The Apostle Paul is helping us know ye not. He's saying, didn't you know? Or why aren't you aware of? You know, knowing and acting, they're not always synonymous with each other, but they certainly are important and connected deeply one to the other. In the first two verses of Romans chapter 6, we learn that we are not saved from sin to continue in it. Now, let me say that again. We learn that we are not saved from sin to continue in it. We'll revisit that again a little bit later in this message. The very design of Christianity is to deliver us from sin. It is not for us to return to it. We're delivered from its punishment, from its power, and ultimately from its very presence. What a contradiction it would be to think that we come to Christ to be delivered from sin only so that we can return to it. In our text, Paul starts with a very strong, really strong question. The words, know ye not, can be literally translated, are you ignorant? Are, are you not aware of something that is part and parcel to the Christian life? Now he's quite frankly carrying this same theme, this same idea into what we now consider for ourselves today. Paul asks this strong question, know ye not, are you ignorant of? The question who am I, is a question that people have always asked. And when they answer it correctly, it informs, to be quite honest with you, their actions. Who am I? Okay, now you are a lot of different people and you fill a lot of different roles. That's true for me. For example, I, am, I, I was first a son. Now, now, my dad still refers to me as pal. He'll still say, hey, pal, how you doing? 
you know, there's not a lot of people that refer to me as pal. In fact, sometimes I take a little offense. Hey, pal, what are you doing? You know, but my dad, my dad can say, hey, pal, how are you? Well, I kind of get into sun mode when I'm around my dad. Okay. Now, there is another role that I have taken on, and that is husband. My wife is the only person that calls me none of your business, okay? So, so she has names and she'll, she'll call me those and, and I respond to her as husband because it's a role that I have. I, I have one person that calls me dad and so I, I respond in that mode. I have some people that call me friend and I pray that I respond in like fashion appropriately as a good friend. I have some people that call me pastor. I, I, I cherish every one of these titles. They're all meaningful, very special to me. And I respond to the role, to the title. And the Apostle Paul is helping us understand there are some things about you that when you start to understand who am I, we start to act in accordance with who we truly are. Again, we draw our identity from, from many different sources, but as Christians, we must not overlook our one overarching identity in Christ. Then when we know who we are, we begin to act like who we are, drawing upon the resources reserved for us. Now, we all know that illustrations some, some kind of stories that have application, parables, if you will. They're helpful. They give us insight. Sometimes we, we've referred to the parables of scriptures as these windows that, that help us see from an earthly story some heavenly truth. Not that this is necessarily a parable, but Saul, excuse me, Paul certainly gives us this insight, this, this illustration it is both literal and figurative. We see in the practice of the local church, in fact, we see it in the practice of this local church, the, the, the literal aspect of the illustration that he gives us. It is some visual, continual, public demonstration of an illustration of a, a figurative a, 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 a principle of scripture that actually is supposed to be true. It is true in the life of every believer. You say, what is the illustration? Well, both the literal and the figurative illustration that Paul uses is that of baptism. Now again, look at verse number three. And the first thing we notice is we are baptized into Christ. Baptized into Christ. Look again at verse number three. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, before we go any further, let's be very clear as to what Paul is not teaching. Paul is not teaching what sometimes we refer to as baptismal regeneration. In other words, that a person is saved through the literal aspect of water baptism. Anyone who does any cursory study in basic Greek language would understand that there are two very distinct meanings behind the word baptism. And so he's not teaching that a person has to pass through the waters of baptism 
to actually be saved. One man wrote this, Paul labored to establish the truth. Now think through this, this previous uh, uh, illustration that was true for the people of Israel. Paul labored to establish the truth that circumcision, an important symbol to Jewish participation in God's covenant with Abraham, does not have the power to save anyone. Remember that it was Abraham's faith that was credited to him in righteousness. Similarly, water baptism, an important symbol of Christian participation in God's new covenant through Christ, does not have the power to save anyone. To that I say amen. There was a powerful illustration that was true for the people of Israel, but this was just an illustration. This was a picture. It was an external, so to speak, uh, uh, illustration of an internal, this spiritual truth. And so what the Apostle Paul does for us here with baptism is he helps us understand water baptism does not save anyone But water baptism is an important picture of a figurative truth. So what does it mean then to baptize? Well, our word baptize is just a transliteration of the Greek word. Many of you would be familiar with this, but baptizo, we've just transliterated it into English. And so we use the word baptize. You say, what does it mean? Two things. It means to immerse and it also means to identify. To immerse and to identify. So the literal physical meaning is immersion. It means to dip. The, 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 the idea of submerge, to sink, to drench, to overwhelm. Uh, the Greeks would use it of a blacksmith. When he's working on a piece of iron, when he would harden that iron, he's working on it and then he would baptize that piece of iron into a bucket of water. The Romans would use it. This is interesting. The Romans would actually use it as they would take their swords and actually baptize their swords, the end of their sword in a pool or in a bucket, some kind of container of blood as they are preparing for or coming back victorious over. They would baptize, immerse their sword in a a little pool of blood, the soldier's baptism. Today, we understand that there is some picture that is literal. And so we know that there is a physical immersion that is connected with baptism. There's also what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 6, a figurative meaning behind the word baptism. And that means our identification. It means to, again, identify To place a person completely into the realm of another. I once identified as this and now my new identity is. One study on the Greek word said it this way. The introduction or or placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into new union with something else as so to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. Paul's using the word to help us understand we've been placed into a new environment with Christ. We know we have this new identity and have been placed into a new union. Now, it might help us to understand, okay, if I, if I use the meaning with some of the scriptures that are found in, in where the word baptizo is used, can that help me understand it? For example, 
In Matthew chapter 28, verse number 19, the Bible says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And then we'd see baptizo, baptizing. We could say identifying them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. You'd say, well, how does that identity work? Well, it happens when a person passes from death to life in the person of Jesus Christ. And then they show the world about that new identity through an actual physical picture of water baptism. So he says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, identifying them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, one Lord, one faith, one identity, one baptism. In Romans chapter 6, verse number 3, our text, Know ye not that so many of us as have our new identity in Jesus Christ were identified into his death. In other words, we recognize people by their identity. We're recognized and identified by those who have died with Christ. We are baptized, identified with Jesus. The old Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. Baptism is an outward visible symbol of an inward spiritual reality. So who should be baptized? Only those people who have the inner spiritual reality. And then the external follows the internal, never the other way around. So water baptism, by immersion, it's just a public way of declaring our new identity in Christ. And anyone who, again, has ever honestly looked at the, what does the word mean, does understand that even the practice of baptism in the New Testament was by means of how we practice it here. And that is by means of immersion. So a person is taken and, and uh, there's a picture that goes along with it. They actually, as would a dead person, they are placed into the hands of another. That person then pictures not only death, but burial as a person is buried under the water. And then there is obviously a glorious picture where that person is brought up out of their watery grave. And then we picture this new resurrection, this new life, our new identity risen with Jesus Christ. So Christ's death, we see the death, the burial, and the resurrection through water baptism. And while water baptism never saved anyone, we often refer to it as one of the first steps of obedience in following Jesus Christ. And, and by the way, I believe that every person who has ever been saved, saved from hell, saved from the consequence of their sin, saved to serve Jesus Christ, I believe that every person who's ever been saved should also follow the Lord in obedient believer's baptism. Now, some people might say, well, well, I was baptized as a baby. Well, remember that, that baptism, the physical picture always follows the inner reality. So a person who was baptized before they actually came to personally know Jesus Christ, I would say, well, let's follow him again. Really, in a sense, for the first time, believer's baptism. Now, again, can a person be saved without being baptized? People ask this question, and, and it's a good question, although you may have already answered it. 
The answer is yes, a person can be saved without being baptized. But another question could be asked, can a person be fully obedient without being baptized? And the answer to that, I would say, I don't know that they can. Baptism, again, it's just that public declaration. The Bible says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then it says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you know the Bible helps us understand that once a person trusts Jesus Christ should not be ashamed? There's some sense of let me publicly declare. Now, sometimes I know we, we say something like, but I would be so embarrassed. I would be so nervous. When I start to consider what it is that Christ accomplished for me, what is it that I wouldn't be willing to do in obedience to him? So should a person be baptized, publicly declare? Well, I guess we answer that in, in this way, in ways that are familiar to most or many in here. Can I be married without wearing my ring? Yes or no? And the answer is absolutely. But why wouldn't I wear my ring? In fact, wouldn't you question me? Especially if you said, well, I just, I don't need to wear that because I, I know I'm already married. I know, but, but rings for us, they have become this public declaration of a very significant covenant vow. So my encouragement is if, if you've ever trusted Christ, wonderful. If you've not yet followed him in believer's baptism, take that next step of obedience in following him. The Bible says it this way in Galatians chapter 3 verse number 27. I know, okay, my, my new identity I, I, I have followed Christ and, and the figurative, the picture of baptism is my reality. Well, Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So now we're talking a lot about this figurative identity, but pastor, what does this actually accomplish? Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says this, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Did you know that God saved us not to sin again, but he saved us and now my identity is completely immersed in him. To what end? So that I might live a life that is reflective of his. Jesus said, John 9, 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus said, I have a window, an opportunity to do what God sent me to do. Well, my identity is now complete in Christ. Lord, now what would you have me to do? I am baptized into Christ. How can I continue to reflect you? Okay, well, well let's consider what does this mean? I'm baptized into Christ. I, I'm to be zealous of good works. What does this mean further? Well, look at our text a little bit further, verse number four. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. You know, the first thing we see, I'm baptized into Christ. We also see I am baptized into his death. We've spent some time talking about this, so we won't belabor it, but let's make a few, again, foundational important comments. Paul's teaching that we are identifying with Christ's death. Let me reiterate the meaning of death. 
We've said this often, and it's a good thing to remember, whenever we see in the Bible, in fact, whenever we see the word death, there is something that we associate death with, a word, and it's the word separation. Separation. So I have been, because of Christ's death, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. If I died with Christ, what was I separated from? I am separated from the realm and the reign of sin and death. No more separation. Remember, this doesn't mean that I cannot sin, but it does mean that I am no longer sin's servant. I no longer have to obey. That old master has no more authority, no more power, and I need no longer to obey. Listen, if you're dead, that has a lot of of ramifications. Uh, listen, can, um, does a person who's dead still have to pay their bills? Yes or no? Well, you can send them the bill, but they're not going to pay it, okay? Well, you have, in a sense, a, an old landlord that you have died to. He may still continue to send you the bill, but you no longer are the servant, so to speak, to that old landlord. You have a new lease, a new savior, whose name is Jesus Christ. When you were baptized into the death of Christ, the old wage of sin lost its power over you. Your old master may continue to send his bills, but you are no longer responsible to pay them. Jesus literally marked them paid in full. And this is why we don't keep working, by the way, to earn favor with God. But let's, let's look further now at verses 4 and 5 and see let's see the ramifications, the implications of I'm baptized into Christ, baptized into his death, but it certainly doesn't end there. Look at verse number four and five. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Okay, if I was planted together, united together with Christ in his death, then Paul states the same thing is true about Christ's life. I identify with his death, but it doesn't stop there. Yes, I died, was buried, but also risen in his resurrection. Paul's, by the way, not just talking about, it's time to turn over a new leaf. That is just, um, that is just kind of fixing up the old. It's like a good renovation project. And Paul's not saying you need a good renovation project. He said you need to be made completely new. That is the new birth in Jesus Christ. So I am buried with him in his baptism wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead, Colossians 2.12. So we are now literally, not just figuratively, a part of Christ's resurrection. Just as we died with Christ, so too now we've been baptized into his resurrection. Some vital union with his death, his burial, his resurrection has taken place. We're both figuratively and literally in Christ. 
Sometimes we say, okay, pastor, you have been talking about this for, for quite a bit. And you've, you've been talking about this identity. And oh, wow, it's, it's kind of like, what does that mean to me? It means that the reality is, if I understand Christ's victory and what he accomplished, and I am in him, then what happened to him is the reality for me. You do not have to individually, every time you are confronted with sin, say, am I going to do this or not? You actually get to confront it and say, why in the world would I, such an one as I, a child of Christ who has died, been buried, and risen again with Jesus, do such a thing that's inconsistent with who I am? I died to sin. How many of you have ever been in a car accident before? Raise your hand. Okay, lots of you. How many of you were the cause? Of, no, 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 don't tell us that, okay? But many people in here in a car accident. I submit that you so closely identify with the car and the accident that you don't say it like this. If you were in the accident, you don't normally say, my car was in an accident. You say, I was in an accident. I was in. What happened to it, in a sense, happened to me. When I start to understand what is it that Christ did, what Christ did, I did in him. I am completely immersed, baptized into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Do you know the implications for knowing who you are in him is liberating. You still do have the capacity to sin. You have retained the capacity, but not the new you. It's no longer literally who you are in your essential being. Paul even explains it, we'll address this later, but it's no longer I, but sin that dwelleth in me. And when I start to understand who am I in my essential nature, I am crucified with Christ. James Boyce said it this way, what has the Holy Spirit done for our salvation? He has joined us to Christ so that we have become the beneficiaries of all that Christ has done. It is terribly important and perhaps the most critical doctrine of salvation in Paul's writing. Paul uses the phrases in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him or their equivalents 164 times in his writing. We can hardly emphasize this enough. You say, well, whoa, he says in Christ a lot. Yeah, he does. Do you think he's trying to get us to the point where he no longer has to say, don't you know? Are you ignorant of this truth that you are in Christ. There's something liberating about resurrection. Do you remember the other illustration that God gave to us when he, he went to Lazarus' tomb and Lazarus had been clearly dead? Burial has some finality to it. It tells us that the person has in fact died. We, we could have, scripture could have just said, died and risen, but it says died, buried, in fact, indeed, dead and resurrected. And Jesus calls forth Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. 
And Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, comes powerfully alive out of the tomb. And what did they do? Well, they removed the grave clothes. Does anyone here actually think that a guy like Lazarus would say, hey, hang on to that suit because I like wearing it. Listen, it would actually be marked by the corruption of death. Why would he go back to that which is synonymous with his death and not live in the newness of life consistent with resurrection? You and I are called to live not just a Lazarus resurrection who died again, but to live a life marked by Jesus Christ who died once never to die again. The Bible says in Acts 17 verse 28, it says, for in him, that is in Jesus, for in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring in Jesus we live and move and have our being. We are completely identified with him. How many of you that have a few years under your belt have realized that your brain oftentimes tells you things that your body is not so willing to do? That uh, there is this sense, oh, yeah, 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 I can do that. And, and your body's saying, don't even try, okay? Several years ago, I felt like I was young enough to still be doing this. In fact, I was 28 years old. But I was playing a game of pickup football um, with a group of guys. And, um, and, and I'm on defense at this moment. And I'm guarding a guy. And, and he goes out for a pass. And the guy playing quarterback threw him the ball. And, and that guy faked one way and then turned the other. So I went with him. I went one way and then went the other. But this knee kept going that way. Okay. And so I went down with a pain that I had never in my life felt before. And so I'm, I'm lying on the ground and I'm hurting. And, and, uh, and you know, you always th say, well, I'll just walk it off. And so I got up and I'm trying to walk it off. And, and a few minutes later, I tried to play again and my knee just was completely loose. And so, so I, I obviously quit playing. Well, I went to the doctor and they kind of looked at it and said, here's some, some you know, aspirin. And, and, um, and that was kind of it. Well, as I got older, in fact, when I got into my late 40s, my, my knee was really loose. And so I went again to a surgeon, to a doctor, and he said, well, let's take a look at it. And, and he says, oh, you, you, you know, tore your ACL. And I said, yeah, I did that a lot of years ago. And he said, well, you know, we're going to have to go in and, and repair it. And when he went in, he actually found that the ACL was gone. I had severed it, and, and it just dissolved through time. So I needed a new ACL. And he gave me an option. He said, now we can do one of two things. He said, we can take a, a ligament, a new ligament from your other leg and put it in. Or we can use a donor graph. He said, at your age, I'd recommend the donor graph. I said, thank you. I'll, I'll take your advice. And so I took the donor graph instead of two surgeries to, to repair that. He said, listen, if you were younger, I'd say you do it. But a guy your age, I hate it when people say that, okay? But a guy your age, I'd do the donor graph. So, so he actually put a donor graph in my knee and, and he said, it's gonna take a while for it to become part of you, about six months and, and it will completely have become a part of your knee. So you gotta be careful for a while, but do you know, I know this is, this is what it is. 
But someone, they, they gave part of themselves. It's just some tissue. It's just something that lived in them. I don't want to be inappropriate or certainly unkind, but that person died and now something of them lives completely in me. In me, it lives and moves and has its being. Everywhere I go, it goes. It actually now is grafted in to me. Another beautiful Bible picture. Do you know what happened to you the day you recognize my sin has separated me from God? And Jesus died a sinner's death so that I might live in him. And do you know what happened? Through your death, you were actually then placed in Jesus Christ. And now exclusively in him, you live and move and have your very being. Why would a person complete in Christ continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not? Don't you know that so many of us as we're baptized into his death are also baptized into his resurrection? And now you and I, as part of Jesus Christ, have the opportunity in him to live, to move, to have our very being. This week, you will be confronted with the opportunity to sin. Remind yourself who you truly are in Jesus Christ and remind the old tempter that you no longer have to pay that wage and you are free to serve your new master Jesus Christ.